Welcome back to the Host Dispatch. In this episode, Anar and I had the immense pleasure of chatting with poet and writer extraordinaire Julie Poole. This episode airs on June 1st, 2021, which is the publication date for Julie's first full-length collection of poetry, Bright Specimen, published by fellow Small Texas Press, Deep Vellum, in Dallas. So happy Pub Day, Julie! We had an enchanting conversation with Julie about her poems in Bright Specimen, which were inspired by her exploration of the Billy L. Turner Plant Resources Center at the University of Texas at Austin, the largest herbaria in the southwestern United States. Julie takes us on a journey into the herbarium, describing what it was like to discover that space and how it became a sanctuary for her where her poems began to blossom and multiply into this beautiful book. To read more about Julie and her writing, including her incredible essays published in places like HuffPost, Publishers Weekly, and the Texas Observer, visit her website, juliepooljp.com. We hope you enjoy this conversation among friends, and as always, thanks for listening. Hi, Julie. How are you? I'm good. How are both of you doing? Doing great. How are you doing, Anar? Good. I am really enjoying Texas spring, and it feels like talking to you and getting to know your your new book is extremely compatible with, with the season here in Austin. I agree. Yeah. I, I have loved reading Bright Specimen. This spring, while going on walks and seeing all the wildflowers that are somehow still in bloom, I guess it feels like they would be gone by now, this late in the season, but they're all still here, so it does feel very seasonally appropriate. Yeah. So we are here to discuss Julie's new book, Bright Specimen, which I believe is going to be coming out on June 1st, which is when this episode will air, so that's super exciting. And Julie, this book had kind of a predecessor in the form of a chapbook or foldable broadside called the Herbarium. Am I getting that right? Is it a foldable broadside or a chapbook? Yeah, it's a foldable broadside. So that just means that it's on a legal size sheet of paper that just folds down to a nice little card size. Um, You know, it's kind of like a map. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the first kind of dive into putting the poems out there. Um, and it was a lot of fun to work on. So, I sold the very last copy of the herbarium from what I can tell at Melvin Books. Um, do you have any remaining copies available? I do. I have a couple. Okay. <laughs> um, and on my website, too, I'm like, hey, I made this thing. If you want to buy it, email me, awesome. um, which is something that I've never done before because I have a very hard yeah. time as a person who makes things, whether it's poems or, you know, a foldable broadside, like telling people about it. And yeah. I've recently shifted into a new mindset that is 
all about telling people yes. <laughs> that I've made something with, with no expectation just because I made it, you know, and it, yeah. I, it doesn't deserve to be in my closet. So true. Well, and I ask because Bright Specimen is incredible. It's a gorgeous collection, but the chapbook is also extremely special and unique. Um, and it just is a beautiful work of art that I absolutely want in my house. <sighs> and I did not realize that was your chapbook. And someone told me about it. And then like the next day, I sold a copy that I believe was the last copy because I can't find anymore. But it's such a cool thing. Um, did you make that chapbook yourself? Or did you collaborate with a local artist? Well, I had the idea. I've used that foldable broadside technique before for a little literary magazine that a friend and I started that no longer exists. It was called Bridge. And we just wanted to have a way to publish poetry that was easy, that could be mailed out um, in a regular mailbox and mm -hmm. no, no special, you know, <laughs> uh, extra shipping costs or whatever. And because we noticed that like when you get a literary journal, you might read like one or two things and it would get tossed out. And we just wanted something really simple that people could have and read. And yeah, so we yeah. published a few Austin writers. We publish, uh, Taisia Kataiskaya. We know her well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And we published some poems by Fernando A. Flores, uh, receipt poems, which I don't know if people know that he also writes poetry in addition to right. his, his skills as a novelist. And yeah. so it was really fun to do that. My uh, collaborator, Corey Ferguson, who's amazing, lives in Eugene, Oregon. So we just eventually got really busy. But he helped me to create the herbarium because there was a reading and I didn't have anything to bring. And mm -hmm. I was like, well, I can do this. And my mom yeah. did the watercolors for it. Yeah. So I wanted to have something that had images. And so my mom, she's a watercolor artist. She did these watercolors that were on tissue paper, and then she cut out the tissue paper and mounted them on regular paper. And so it added to this element of the piece being delicate. Mm -hmm. And so ah, it's so fun to create things that come so close to your final vision and to not have any limitations. Because to tell the truth, I was sending out those poems for a few years and not getting any response. And so oh I was gosh. like, well, I can see why they only work well in a series or not really good one-off <laughs> reads. That well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was like, well, why don't I take this into my own hands and not wait for permission to create something? Yes. If I have the resources and the help and the skills to do so. And I love that. That's what being an artist is, is creating these, these things with people that you love, mm -hmm. uh, has an act of love, and yeah. then sharing them with people. Yes. And it's amazing when <laughs> those people that you share your work with also love it. It's oh, like, yes. ah! <laughs> yes. I love everything about what you just said, Julie, but I really love these ideas of 
Well, of course, not waiting for permission and, and just, yeah, gathering your resources and your people and making it happen, but also just moving a little bit outside of the traditional forms or what have come to be the traditional forms that we seek to publish our work as poets um, within, like the traditional chapbook or these book contests. Um, there's like these pre-paved avenues now for getting poetry published, even just sending out to literary journals. That doesn't work for everyone, and it nor should it. It's, it's far too cut and dry. It's far too square. I really love the idea of just trying to reimagine how poetry gets printed and what kind of art object it becomes mm. once it is in print and that it goes beyond just the poems themselves, especially in the herbarium with your mother's watercolors Ugh. and just the way that it folds out like a map um, and it isn't a book with normal pages. It is an art object, uh, which I really love. Thank you. So cool. I will have to find a copy or arrange with you. And for people listening, definitely get your hands on that bad boy. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I just wanted to mention, um, so Julie, you and I have been in each other's spheres for several years now. And we've, you know, I consider myself very fortunate to share space with you. But um, like we cross each other's paths often. And over time, I've picked up little tidbits of you. Like, I remember at a holiday party, you know, how Malvern does like the white elephant gifts. And they're usually gag gifts, but they usually are for specific people. And I remember there was a mug and tea set that was extremely floral or um, there was some like pressed flower item, can't quite recall. And everyone at the table like was whispering, oh, that's for Julie, that's for Julie. Um, <laughs> and I just, pressed flowers um, was like what I pulled from that that day about you. And, you know, of course, this is your book. Like, of course, this is, you know, what interests you and something that has really influenced and shaped you is is your connection with the natural world and how that helps you peace and navigate and fill your life um but I just wanted to say that's a full circle fact for me <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it was like a, a really beautiful rounded it was like a wax bowl um, yeah. that you could put sand in and a candle in. And when you lit the candle, it would illuminate light. And because there were daisies planted in the wax, the flowers were just kind of, you know, radiate. And it was very beautiful, handmade. And I actually have it sitting on my table right now. <laughs> that is awesome. But yeah, I think that... Uh, it's funny because people, you know, associate flowers with beauty and delicacy and and I absolutely have those associations, but I was very wary of uh, being perceived as a, a sensitive person because mm -hmm. of my interests or being seen as fragile or... <laughs> 
I don't, because that's what I looked at. I looked at these very fragile specimens at the herbarium, and these were pressed plants that had dried out and were very delicate. I had to handle them like art objects. Yeah. Um, and I realized that, you know, in looking at that fragility and that beauty and, and that almost feminine association we have with flowers, I was kind of being forced to reconcile those things in myself and be okay with that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm a sensitive person. (laughs) I'm very Mm -hmm. sensitive to like changes in the natural world. I notice things. I don't have a yard. I live in an apartment with some thriving succulents, some not thriving succulents. (laughs) And on my patio... (laughs) There's nothing that's living anymore. So I really, I have to seek it out. I have to notice nature in an urban environment. Uh, I live like in the center of Austin. So I have to be aware of like blue bonnets, you know, coming up through the cracks in the cement on the sidewalk and realize, oh, there it is. Yeah. I don't have to go to Big Bend National Park. <laughs> I can really yeah. like just go a few feet from my apartment and see something that reminds me and connects me mm-hmm. to something I really value, which is a sense of peace and healing and creativity that comes through looking at the natural world. Yeah. And I know this is now a couple years in the past, but it seems like maybe that was part of the impetus for you when you, after stumbling upon the herbarium at the University of Texas in the tower, perhaps that's why you kept going back. Um, Perhaps that was part of the draw. And I'm definitely curious to hear you talk about that, Julie, if you don't mind. Could you describe for us what it was like the first time you walked into the herbarium? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I actually didn't know I was allowed to just kind of walk in um, because the door is like this very old door and I had just dropped off my thesis manuscript. So mm-hmm. I was just about to graduate and I was like, well, I did that. I'm done. I'm done with school. And then I noticed I like took a wrong turn and I noticed a sign that said Plant Resources Center and this wooden door mm-hmm. and the door said, push hard. And there was no window, so I couldn't see inside. And so I did that. And I walked in and the ceilings were low and there were a bunch of cabinets and it smelled really earthy. (laughs) And I just kept walking. I was like looking at all the books and, and there were pressed plants out just getting ready to be cataloged. And um, the curator, Dr. George Yatskovich, he um, basically popped out of his office and he said, hello. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, hello. I was just like, I was just really curious about this space. I'm just, you know, a visitor. And he said, oh, well, I can show you around if you'd like. Just Mm -hmm. go ahead and sign our little visitor's book. And, And he gave me a little tour of what is essentially like a library for plants and we're talking like over a million of them so there are multiple floors of just cabinets with plants kind of like stacked on top of each other very carefully 
and the cabinets have to be secure because you don't want insects getting in. So mm -hmm. all the elements have to be there, the right temperature, all of that. Um, mm. But he showed me some specimens, um, including one that, that Darwin had found. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm looking at this plant. And to tell you the truth, it was a shriveled little buddy. And uh, it was very hard to recognize. But I was looking at something that Darwin had once looked at. And it just blew my mind. Yeah. So I asked him, I was like, well, would it be possible for a non-botanist, a non-science person to just come here and maybe look at a few specimens I told him I'm a poet and mm -hmm. I'd like to write about them. And he's like, I don't see why not. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh my gosh. I wonder if at that moment he knew that I would be there for six months and that I would return <laughs> over the course of like three and a half years yeah. to take photos and to continue the project. So I don't think he knew what he was getting into. <laughs> And it's like, you said, I want to look at a few specimens. Julie, how many did you end up looking at? Do you oh, know? Oh, gosh. Well, I think I hit around a thousand. Um, wow. And, you know, to tell you the truth, I wrote a lot of poems. I wrote like yeah. a, well over 350 <laughs> because I, I write a lot, but a lot of it is like stuff I have to just kind of abandon. But when I first, you know, kind of got the idea, I was like, I want to find like the most beautiful specimen here. Mm -hmm. If there are close to a million plants, the likelihood that I could like find the holy grail, <laughs> there's like some small chance that I could do that. And wow. I was like obsessed with that idea. And that obsession immediately ended after the first week mm. when I was like, oh, you know what? I'm actually not interested in beauty at all. I just want to learn how to describe what I'm seeing because I just spent two years in an MFA program trying to learn how to write poetry. And when I got out, I was like, do I know how to write poetry? <laughs> like, do I know how to describe what I'm seeing? So I realized then that I was taking on a big challenge, but it was a challenge that was uniquely catered to my soul Yes, at the time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is perfect. Um, it sounds like a fairy tale, that story you just told. From the moment you find a big old wooden door that says push hard it's like in Alice in Wonderland when she finds things that have <laughs> instructions on them like eat me <laughs> and you just were like okay and you pushed hard I mean there's just like this curiosity spontaneity like you had no idea this was going to happen to you that day or any other day that it even existed after having spent years on campus which I also spent years on that campus and still have never walked into that room. And I've been in that building. So it must be fairly hidden. And that's what makes it seem so fairy tale esque as well is like it's full of ancient, earthy things and it's hidden away. And there's this kindly man who is yes. at the gate and so ready and willing to at least 
usher you in to this like new realm. It's beautiful. Yeah, I feel so lucky. Um, everyone there was so nice. And it was an incredible experience. They had a desk that I, I got to work at when, you know, no one was using it and mm-hmm. um, had my own kind of spot. And it was so magical to be able to write and look at these plants under a magnifier and really see them like in such like incredible detail. And then in the cubicles next to me, someone is working on a certain species of plant that they've been working on and study exclusively for like over a decade or something. Like mm-hmm. every everyone has a specialty. And mm-hmm. so to be amidst scientists who were so incredibly involved in their work was so inspiring as a creative person because as a poet you know you're so prepared just to be (laughs) invisible and (laughs) the work you do might never see the light of day and there are many people in other fields that will spend like years devoted to one animal one plant one type of butterfly and do all their creative research and I imagine there's some fear and like, well, what, you know, will this research serve mm-hmm. and be read? And will it continue the progress of, of science? And as poets, my question is, can I continue the progress yeah. of, of my own field of creativity, um, writing? So I've started to think of myself in a lineage of creators and there's so many types of creators and beyond i'm i'm maybe reading into this julie but it sounds like you mean beyond poetry beyond other poets which seems really important especially post mfa i mean other poets can be such a wonderful nourishing community but i do think that as poets you know, we can get a little stuck in our own our own moment and our own place and to like even just step into other fields and, and experience the yeah, like the, the kinds of work that botanists are doing. That makes total sense to me that you could sort of reframe your idea of yourself as a poet based on those interactions. And MFA can't give you that <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah. We have to each find it ourselves. And so it's so inspiring to hear your story, which does sound absolutely mythical, um, yeah. about how you you found it in such a specific place, too, that it seems like it was just there for you. I mean, it's not like all the poets at UT were, you know, banging on the door trying to get into the herbarium. It was like, it was your spot. <laughs> Yeah, this might sound a little creepy. <laughs> but we're here for it. Okay. Yeah. So I I knew a little bit about the history of the tower after I started working there because I could feel it. Um that mm-hmm. is a space that in 1966 one of the first mass shootings happened in the US. And so I was working very close to the stairwell that George Whitman had climbed to carry out murders on campus. 
And so I kind of felt like this eerie feeling while I was there. So I felt like I was in this space that was both very loving and productive because of the people that were there and also a space that had been in close proximity to um, tragedy Mm -hmm. and trauma. And at that point in my life, I was dealing with a lot of things that were very traumatic that I didn't understand. And it surprises me, too, that I found the herbarium because immediately after I graduated, I wanted to leave Texas Mm -hmm. and get off of campus because UT is a place where you can carry a handgun. And that scared me. Uh, It scared a lot of people, you know. Um, So I was shocked that I wanted to stay there and that I was rooted there because there was something that I wanted to do that was more important than my fear of something terrible happening on campus. I was just going to say I feel that in the book. I feel in Bright Specimen... Like we are walking through a kind of garden space, but at the same time we're on a ledge um, and in different poems and different poetic sequences we get closer to that edge and, you know, certain poems acknowledge it um, and others I feel like it's, it's just felt, but there is absolutely an undercurrent of dread and just an awareness of an awareness of that that presence of danger um, in many forms. Because the book, you know, it's not about flowers. <laughs> it's not. I mean, it is and it isn't. Um, it's the imagined lives of these flowers and a speaker or speakers who relate to those lives. And as you mentioned, flowers can be delicate and fragile and so to relate to that is automatically an association with a presence of real danger. Yeah. I mean, I think I wrote this book to heal myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I wrote it to read to myself at night because I was not in a good spot. You know, this is like oh, 2017, a year into the election, like everything just felt like it was on fire then Mm -hmm. and I was just trying to find some sort of space within my mind and within my body where I felt some sort of safety and I couldn't achieve that through other like self-care techniques like (laughs) therapy or meditation or or even sometimes exercise there was something that I felt like I couldn't get to at all. And so the only resource that I had to cope was by looking closely at something in front of me and directing all of my attention at a certain specimen and spending Mm -hmm. like 15, 20 minutes just looking at every single detail and trying to process a story out of that. Because... <laughs> it's hard to describe something beautiful. You're always failing. And I feel like 
failing is a part of making poetry. If you're not prepared to fail, then <laughs> then you might be in trouble. <laughs> because it's all about our inadequacy to put language to what we're seeing. Um, but that doesn't stop us. Mm-hmm. That's what's really beautiful about writing is we'll never stop trying to put language to things that we can't really describe. Yes. It's, it's kind of strange. Like, why have people been doing this for so long? Why have people been writing poetry? It's so neurotic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and insatiable. I'm reminded of Georgia O'Keeffe who did the series of mountains. There was like a particular mountain that she painted over and over and over and over again, not different versions, really trying to paint the same thing. And I really love that kind of obsession and that idea that there is a sort of perfection that is being strived for, even though it's purely imaginative like it's purely within our own imagination that it exists um but that kind of uh repeated movement or attempt that is always it's like it's a seeking a kind of seeking it almost feels spiritual to me um like there is a kind of answer that's being sought and so even though she probably knew the next time she painted that damn mountain it was only going to be slightly different from the last canvas There was a compulsion that couldn't be helped to try to find whatever it is she was looking for. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I was I was thinking Georgia O'Keeffe earlier, just in that, you know, you were describing the way that you perceived Julie or had perceived flowers as being extremely delicate, um, fragile things. Whereas like a lot of my experience with with flowers aside from like here in Austin, they just burst out of the cracks of the sidewalks, um, is, is that it's very like sensual and sexual and queer thing. Mm -hmm. And, and I love getting extremely close, um, and now like close enough with like macro lenses to where you don't know what you're looking at. And I'm sure that when you're looking at it under a microscope, um, Plants have almost a meaty human quality to them. If you look so closely, that doesn't make me think this is extremely delicate. Um, Yeah. But it just that it's like juicy and human and like, I don't want to say erotic because I'm a baby, but, but, but there's definitely just like an intense sexuality that comes off when you look really deep inside of a flower. <laughs> You're so right. Yes, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, flowers are, are incredibly strong. Like when you think about roots or like just the ability to withstand time every year when everyone has allergies, <laughs> I mean, a flower can like set you <laughs> out yes. in mm-hmm. bed for weeks, <laughs> you know? So plants aren't just delicate. They aren't just fragile. They have this side to them that is really resilient. Mm-hmm. And that resilience comes from, I think you're absolutely right, Anar. I think it comes from a sexuality, like an overt sexuality, 
like Georgia O'Keeffe again, like her depictions of flowers and natural life. Everyone was always like, oh, wow, that's a giant vagina. Yes, <laughs> totally. <laughs> and and yes, you know, like the, you know, there are patterns that we see replicated. Like if we look under a microscope, we will see veins in a petal that look just like the veins in our skin or mm-hmm. um we'll see like tiny microscopic hairs and I'll be like, that reminds me of my hairy legs. (laughs) (laughs) And so these are things that we are looking for. And I think like for me has like a, as a creator interested in femininity and art that doesn't engage with the masculine world. Mm -hmm. I'm looking to create a feminine space. I'm looking to create... (laughs) My version of giant vaginas (laughs) (laughs) all over the place because I feel comfort in that. I feel strength in that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like empowered by it too because feminine creative energy is something that is really powerful and often you could feel like how much it, <laughs> their outside influence just want to stomp on it and, and belittle it and take it down. Um, or label it label as it. something. And people look at flowers and they see beauty and delicacy, but as you've just illuminated for us, they're just not looking close enough. Like it's They're hairy and sticky and <laughs> funky and spiky and weird. Um, and those are all things that we should also be able to be as, as women and as artists. And I have, I have a picture of Georgia O'Keeffe, like at my desk, which is really kind of a fun thing. I got it while I was in New Mexico. Um, it's a picture of her in profile because she worked as an artist in New Mexico. And actually I wrote this poem. It's called Castalasia purpurea i didn't plan on reading this poem but it this is like this is something that i feel like might connect to our conversation um to new mexico in a search of a color i've never seen not sure if it would be found in the tapestry or the sky or some rocky formation not sure how the color would make me feel But I'd seen some faintly familiar tone on a paintbrush specimen, and that only affirmed my instinct for vastness, a particular tint like a particular sound. The color, I was sure, could only emerge out of a great expanse. It would mark itself across my chest and make me stand tall naturally. In seconds, it would be gone. The exact conditions to replicate it, weather, and light would change. This was all just a sense I had, like a piece of music I had to hear, but no name to look it up by. And uh, the reason I brought up that poem is that I... (laughs) I wrote that poem well before I got accepted into a residency that would take me to New Mexico. And I wrote this poem has like 
a dream for my future in a way. Mm-hmm. And that I, I'm, I probably sound super creepy. But when I was looking at this plant, I was like, I know what I need to do. I need to like seek out this color and this atmosphere and this place in my imagination that is real in the real world and try to see if I can find it. And the plant inspired that journey. (laughs) So I ended up going to New Mexico and was at a writing residency working on these poems. And I had so many moments where I was looking at the sky and I was like, I'm going to see that color. I'm going to see that color that's just going to shape everything and just change and rock my world. And it happened every single night. (laughs) Because the sky in New Mexico is like, it's so beautiful. And the minute changes that happen and the colors that impact the landscape around it. There's a reason why painters went there. There's a reason why... Georgia O'Keeffe went there to paint landscapes, to make her home there, um, because there is a light there, and this is just wild to me, (laughs) that isn't the same light (laughs) as other places. And as singular as it is, it also sounds like you're in a constellation of artists who have felt that and sort of done something similar, like seeking out that that color or a color in that specific place. I love that idea. And you are not kidding about New Mexico skies. Anar and I were just talking about the James Terrell art yes. installation art. on campus, the sky space. Mm-hmm. Um, something kind of like that happens in New Mexico where the colors of the light, but also the color of the landscape itself, which has these warm tones, and it's so flat. The sky is just kaleidoscopic. <laughs> how, how beautiful to manifest an entire experience based off of a color mm-hmm. that inspired you to write a poem. That is so beautiful. Yeah. Wow. It is interesting, too, that you could be guided by this impulse, which Mm -hmm. is something that I believe, like, there are these seeds planted. And maybe there's some aspect in in the creative work that any creative person is working on that's pulling them in the direction of their future, that's making them listen to what their heart is really saying you know, to go out there and observe the world and and do it on your own terms and and not be concerned about the results or the Mm -hmm. monetary gain. (laughs) You know, there's there's so much pressure in the arts, but so much of the art that we create, it might just have a lot of those, like going back to the map idea, it might have a lot of those little signposts and turn at the next exit. I fully believe in following the creative impulse as an artistic philosophy. Yeah. We we have these conversations in the office often that we ask, you know, what is a poet and what is poetry? And we don't think that all poets write poetry. And I think there's definitely this element in a poetic life that 
has a lot to do with living poetically. And Mm. I would describe that as kind of like leading into those impulses that kind of guide you. And, you know, you've said a couple of things that have interested me in that, like, there is this light that you've chased and it makes me this light and this color that you've chased that makes me wonder about like, what is time? And if we remove the linear elements of how we perceive time, like, is this a color that you knew you've seen in some way, in some dimension that Mm -hmm. you were going to meet yourself in this space with this color? Um, And in the same vein that you said that all of these moments in your life brought you to that desk, into that herbarium. Um, And I think that is like leaning into that kind of instinct and like really opening yourself up to that is just as important as the poetry that is born from that. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, because it's about aligning who you are with your art. And that, I mean, I had, I turned down (laughs) a fully funded (laughs) teaching position (laughs) in Orono, Maine. I was just about to move to Maine. Um, I had gotten into school. I was going to study poetics at the University of Maine. And I was really excited. I'd have insurance. I'd have security. I'd have a job. Um, and I turned that down because I <laughs> I wanted to write about flowers. <laughs> I'm sure there are people who are like, what were you thinking? I love the thought of you perhaps writing that in an email to someone. <laughs> yes. They were confused because I was just like... I didn't see a future. Mm-hmm. I didn't see like a creative future for myself because I had just been in academia for two years and I realized that academia wasn't teaching me something. Um, it wasn't teaching me to trust myself fully. I think I learned like, cause I didn't start, <laughs> I didn't start my MFA program until I was like, Oh gosh. 35. Mm -hmm. Um, And my book is now coming out. I'll be 41 on June 4th. My book comes out on June 1st. And so I'm like, yeah, you better make sure it comes out. (laughs) Still technically 40, man. (laughs) It's awesome. But um, yeah, I think it's, I knew that I wouldn't learn what I needed to learn. And that I would have to teach myself. And mm-hmm. part of that would be making mistakes and trying something that was very out of my element. I don't know anything about botany. Mm-hmm. So I approached it with like a childlike mind. And originally I had this huge list of things that I would do. Like I would become like this self-trained botanist. I had all these books and I was like, I'm going to learn about plant systematics and and I'm going to learn exactly what the medicinal qualities of lavender are, and what it can heal. And I got like <laughs> two days into research and I was so overwhelmed that I was like, <laughs> I'm never going to be able to write a book if I do this. Right. I can't expect myself to be an expert. I just yeah. have to follow my lyric sensibility and trust that I'm describing things in the best way that I can with the skills that mm-hmm. I have. 
So now, of course, I would love to learn. I would love to take a class with Dr. George. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like learn about, you know, what he does in the field and do plant systematic exercises in the textbook. I would love to do that. But like a line that absolutely just knocks me down in this poem is the last, the last couple like a piece of music I had to hear, but no name to look it up by. That is so sensual and such an amazing place to land, I think, in this poem. And if you had the names to look this shit up by, <laughs> then that line may not have ever come to be, you know? Yeah. And I feel like it's the, it's the heartbeat for me in the poem where my heart really gets drawn into that line because... I don't know exactly the sensation that's being described, but there's something in my human body that can feel it and relate mm. to it somehow. Like, I know this feeling, but I don't know the words to call it by. Yeah, so I feel like that childlike sensibility and entering this space without the language, perhaps, could have been super generative. Um, that's the way it feels to me, because you did write a lot of poetry there. I did, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, not to be cheesy, but, you know, creating your own language around what you were seeing rather than finding the technical language for it feels yeah. like a beautiful impulse in terms of how to interact with that space. Can I ask you a question about the shape of these poems, Julie? Yes. What can you tell me about? Um, I know that so for those of you who have not received your copy yet, but will, um, <laughs> there's these gorgeous images of specimens throughout the book mm. um, and the shape of these poems. Everyone's wildly different from the other. Um, and it's just such a, an incredible experience to read these. Uh, yes. Well, first of all, <laughs> I have super slanty, messy handwriting. And so when I was writing these poems, I wrote them very quickly down the page. And these are the shapes that I wrote them in. And then after I wrote them, like I hand wrote them and like I had multiple poems on a single page. I just wrote and wrote and wrote. I was trying to write quickly so that I wouldn't have any time to backtrack and say, oh, that's a terrible line break, or mm -hmm. oh my god, I hate that line. Mm -hmm. So I was like trying to just drive forward while in sort of like a meditative bodily space. So a lot of these are how I wrote them. And mm -hmm. then the spacing, <laughs> this sounds so nerdy, but I literally took a pen and I put dots between each word each handwritten poem that I did so that I knew that when I went to type up the poem, how many spaces I would have between the words so that it would feel like there was like a sense of, Julie. I wanted to sculpt them. <laughs> I feel like your poems mirror the shape of the specimens, which is so fascinating. They do. Wow. Yes. Yeah. A lot yeah. of them do. Yeah. Wow. They're organic shapes. Yeah, they needed to be. I couldn't have written these as prose poems or couplets or anything else. That just wasn't yeah. going to happen. I needed to be able to somehow figure out a way to make 
not a new form, but a form that I felt fit the closest with what I was looking at. Yes. Wow. And and these photographs, are these ones that you took of specimens? Yes. So I photographed each specimen that I wrote about. So I hope... <laughs> I have a ton of photographs. Oh my God, that's a lot of photos. I wanted to be able to go back and make sure that I was, you know, doing my homework correctly, that I was spelling things correctly. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I just was trying to like find this meticulous yet kind of (laughs) loopy strategy for organizing my work. Love it. The line breaks are really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And I love the information that you wrote them quickly. And so to me, that suggests uninterrupted thought. But as a reader, the experience of the line breaks for me was constantly thinking I was putting syntactically a thought together and then it would get disrupted by the breaks. But I really loved that because then the connective tissue of the language kind of went backwards and forwards. I felt like it sort of branched in all these really beautiful ways. Um, But instead of continual thought, for me, it felt like, yeah, broken thought. Thank you. Do you want me to read one of the poems that's kind of like super broken? I would love that. Yes. And it's so funny because I don't normally volunteer because I don't like reading poems out loud. But, you know, you guys are so fun. So (laughs) I can't. We love it. You can read the whole book to us if you want. (laughs) Okay. So this is on 22. um, Nymphaea Odorata. A hook with a wedding dress on the end. A diagram for where to pin a corsage, a signature annulling the marriage of a god and a mortal, the voice of Lady Day, the sheets a young bride wants but won't ask for, two-day snow when sparrows have drawn maps and it's still too cold for any other animal, a piece of jewelry wrapped in tissue too beautiful to wear, a road that was lost, and a road that is beginning, a new explanation for how babies are born, the sort of woman I want to become. So uh, yeah, the flower for that is, is actually on the previous page. It's got like this swooping, it looks like hook figure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is it a daffodil? Uh, so this is a water lily. Oh. Yeah. So at first, when I was reading the book, I had my computer. And so I was, for each one, Googling the Latin term uh-huh. for the flower. And then, you know, I stopped doing it because I felt like I was kind of spoiling it a little by getting an image first thing in my head and then reading. And I was like, oh, I don't think this is the way... I should read this book. So then I kind of would do it randomly at the end of a poem if I felt like I need to know specifically what flower this is and what it looks like, which of course still isn't, it's not what you were looking at. Um, But I had an interesting experience with that, uh, the Latin terms and what to do with them. And I feel like once I got into the flow of the book, I didn't care so much that I didn't know exactly what flower was being spoken about or I could find context clues or, you know, look it up if I felt like it. But that was... 
yeah, an interesting experience. But I'm glad that you <laughs> you didn't look them up because for me, the the names and the titles are just kind of, um, they're important, but they're placeholders for what I want to be a sensory experience, mm-hmm. for what I want to feel like you're seeing the body of something and you're mm-hmm. seeing the shape of something and maybe you're not sure what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I think that I felt that after a couple of poems, I felt that that was not the way (laughs) to read this book and that it was okay that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. You know, the title of the poem was like a language I cannot read. Um, That became fascinating in and of itself. My brain was so much more primed for the poetry not knowing and not seeing. Um, so for anyone tempted to look <laughs> these up, like I was like a little hamster, like I just can't not Google things. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. I mean, so many of those names I can't even say correctly. <laughs> right. I <laughs> but it's can't like, either. It's just a place in my imagination where I'm trying to get to and... I don't need to know that that is, you know, that's so important to me. Like, and how I think about poetry is that when I'm reading a poem, I don't need to understand everything about it. I'm so anti close reading. (laughs) I'm anti close reading because I think that there's a way to overread a poem and just absolutely destroy it. And I, you know, I've been in a situation in workshops where we just, we pick it apart until it's like there's nothing left. And and reading poetry is about being in an unfamiliar landscape and being able to accept that unfamiliar landscape exists. And maybe you feel welcome in that landscape. Maybe you don't. Um, but you just try to, like, go with it <laughs> and see where it takes you. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, one of the worst... One of the worst questions you can ask of a poem is, what does it mean? I feel like that's so reductive, because if you're looking for meaning, there's plenty of great nonfiction out there, folks. Like, there's so many great (laughs) essays and and so much great writing that will tell you exactly what it means. But that is not what poetry is here to do. Um, Even the poetry that it, it seems to be doing that, you know, if it's... If it's good, then it's also opening all of these other back doors that you can walk through and have a whole completely different experience than what's actually on the page. So I'm with you. This is one of the first poems I marked as one I would like to hear you read. So I'm so glad you picked it out. Oh, Uh, cool. A Hook with a Wedding Dress is just such a beautiful opening to this and such a beautiful image for for a flower and I really love the way that this poem opens up some conversations around femininity but also an origin story I think that really weighted ending of the sort of woman I want to become I I really feel like that sets us up for a lot of what does happen in in the poems to follow um, and the kind of personal origin story that this book creates it's funny because i don't even think of myself as a woman most of the time right <laughs> i mean i never use that word i still yeah. feel like a 14 year old girl and i'm wearing like the mm-hmm. same clothes i wore in high school pretty much which is like leave it to beaver style ball cap 
overalls t-shirt. Yes. And so it's really strange to me that I'm like looking at something and looking at the femininity of it and trying to decide like, well, what kind of femininity do I want to express? Like, what would that look like for me? And it doesn't include marriage and it doesn't include wedding dresses mm-hmm. and it doesn't include a lot of things that um, might be expected of me, maybe. <laughs> so in calling yourself a woman i understand that hesitation or their reticence because it does have it just has so much baggage attached to it a lot of which is explored yeah. in the poem and um i guess what i what i liked about that is like a hinge opening a door at the end of the poem is that other permutations of that word become possible and get explored a little bit I think in subtle ways in the book Mm -hmm. right like it does there's no thesis here but that was one of the sort of threads I felt throughout the book do you feel like using the word woman in the poem was a way for you to explore like alternate meanings or connotations for it yeah I think that a lot of like the poem about New Mexico it was about how do I see myself in the future what am I in the process of becoming? Um, would I ever embrace that word woman and be like, yes, <laughs> woman. <laughs> I don't know, to tell you the truth. It's just, I think for me, sonically, it worked because I was dealing with something that, uh, of all the flowers that I looked at, was really one of the most womanly flowers, <laughs> to tell you the truth. I mean, I it's really was one of the most beautiful specimens I looked at, and I loved the shape, I loved everything. It was just like, it looked like a wedding dress. It had that <sighs> shimmer on it, but it also had this element of danger in that the stem curved like a hook it was both like, I could get married and I could also murder you. <laughs> so it was like this tension between femininity and like a little hint of violence. Yeah. I think women and being a woman is the most dangerous thing anyone could be. So I think it works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I, I'm just, I'm fascinated by it. Um, the the feelings around the language that we have for ourselves, especially in terms of gender. And um, I feel uncomfortable with that word too for some reason. And I don't know why, because Mm. I do feel like a cisgendered person, but I don't know what it is about the language itself that doesn't feel like me. And and I also feel like a girl. Like I think that some part of me is like, I didn't grow up or something, or it's, there's some kind of connotation that I subconsciously resist there. And so I always would think of myself as becoming a woman rather than being one. I don't know. That's why I asked, because I'm just personally curious. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm going to be 41 and I'm just like, am I a woman yet? Right. (laughs) When does it happen? When does it happen? Like, in you know, is childbirth, is that what, you know, because that's not an experience I'm going to have. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, like, would embracing womanhood mean also embracing an element of power that I'm a bit afraid of? Because, you know, we live in a culture where we have we have girls, we have the TV show girls, we have, you know, lots of girl media 
girl bosses, girl this, girl that, you know. And so it is it is an interesting word because it, it's loaded, it's got power in it, but also it doesn't really have any power because it's you know, it's attached to depending on your spelling, if you spell it with a Y or if you mm-hmm. <laughs> if you spell it with an M A N, you're just kind of like an add on yes. to something else. Like you're yeah. you're just like Adam's rib. You know, yeah. what am I gonna grow up and feel like Adam's <laughs> right. rib? You wanna know something that like haunts me daily about being a perceived by society a woman. Um this is kind of macabre, but I really do not like the idea of something happening to me, um, like car accident. I don't drive, so that's never going to happen. But, um, you know, being robbed or mm-hmm. finding something, a dead body. I don't know. And the news reporting, 30-year-old woman finds body. Um, yeah. And that that is referring to me really makes me not happy about being a woman it's very confusing um yes oh my gosh to go off of that like I I was hospitalized for having you know I had a manic episode bipolar one disorder and there were Mm -hmm. so many times in my hospital records where I was like this woman is severely disabled or like seeing myself in a remove, like you were talking about in our like seeing myself has just like yeah, it's terrifying <laughs> to yeah. to think that you might not have a name, um, or lose your name or yes. missing woman. I mean I, I have I have a poem about that kind of addresses that too. It's really short, but it's about like... Read it! Read it! Is it okay? Okay. So this one is page 50, Viola Lanceolata. Viola Lanceolata. Hey, says Viola, how did my head get down here? I was found by the sour lake. A murderer drove his boot across my back. No respect for the body of a young girl. My name is Viola Lanceolata L, and I will make sure this gentleman rots in hell. Mm. Yes. I don't know why I kind of giggled after reading that, but that poem scared the shit out of me when I wrote it because I was like, I feel like there will be revenge for violence against women. And I feel like the natural world is watching. (laughs) Yes. Um, Helena Boberg has this beautiful book called Sense Violence. And, you know, trigger warning, it lives up to its title. And it is about violence against women and young girls in many ways. But it also is so within a immutable consciousness and within the plant realm as well. So I cautiously recommend it, but I feel an echo of that in this poem. I thought of that book when it got to this poem because in her book, she's always talking about the severed heads of flowers and relating them to the, the missing and the disappeared girls mm. in the book. And I I think this poem is is so wonderful because you do kind of laugh out loud at the end. I actually also did. <laughs> 
because of the rhyme. It's the the rhyme rhyme. that gets you. You're angry and disgusted, and then you giggle. So there's like this beautiful emotional roller coaster in the poem that I think is very appropriate for the subject matter. Even things like getting our heads chopped off, just the absurdity of having a body and of being severed is, is wild, the kind of emotions that that will bring up you know when you see it on a cartoon or something like that um but yeah something about that rhyme my name is viola lanceolata l and i will make sure this gentleman rots in hell is just it's funny (laughs) (laughs) i like that rhyme i do too you know and in thinking about you know this aversion that we have being unnamed bodies but identified by our age and our genitals um something that you are doing in this book is giving the scope of the flower a name each individual flower by its species name and each specimen that you view with a voice that is you know spoken through poetry and I think that kind of comes full circle in my own brain where it's like the things that we hate that society does to us, we could probably do when we're like, hey, I like flowers, look at that flower, but not know anything about its origin or history or um, scientific name. It's like, we're all just specimens that want to be called by our names and like identify ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. Can I say another poem that made me laugh? Yes. (laughs) Viola Bicolor, the one that starts, I've never met so many happy radicals in my life. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You don't have to read this one or anything. I just wanted to point out that I got a real big laugh out of it. It so accurately describes a situation that I've been in and felt as a poet surrounded by male poets, many of whom I respect and admire in some fashion. But... Do you want to read it? Sure. Why not? Let's shake it up. Viola Bicolor. I've never met so many happy radicals in my life. They're all shooting the same direction. Rocketing. They're in good humor because they have women to cook for them. All the books they quote are from outer space, a booming, booming bombast. Only a spoonful of chocolate mousse shuts them up. I'm happy they're here. A few know some good lines of poetry. (laughs) Thank you! I really loved the line, I'm happy they're here, which is a very tongue-in-cheek line, but I feel it. Like, there's this wrestling with, oh, these idiot men, intellectuals, poets, whomever they may be. And especially as we are, when we're younger or when we're in academia, you're surrounded by them. Uh, and there's just this particular feeling you get of being kind of energized by their it booming, booming, bombast energy and also just totally disgusted by it. And <laughs> women have an interesting power in this poem because at first... The women are just cooking for them, but then they're shutting them up <laughs> with that cooking, which really just tickled me. Uh, and it stands out so much to me in this book. 
Oh, I love that rating. Yeah. It's like shove a spoon in their mouth. That's all they need. (laughs) I think, yeah, like to be, you know, a quote unquote woman writer, you have no one to fucking cook for you. At least I don't. I have pre-made meals. If right. you're alone, yeah. All the books they quote are from outer space. It's so fun. It's such a fun line. And it's also, there's like a particular kind of privilege that's being acknowledged in this poem of like, they don't have to be in the real world. Mm. Claire, you're so right. They don't have to cook their own meals. <laughs> yeah, every single line in this poem was just like another little knife stab at you know the male gaze i guess or the male poets and i really love <laughs> you're <it>. so right <laughs> which is to say that this book really is you know so many tonal registers that flow in and out of it and the humor really hits hard in certain in certain moments despite how you know also i can be so heavy I can feel so so much emotional fatigue in the lines even and then there's joy and despair. I mean, it's just, it's there's such a range. So many favorites, though, Julie. So many. Thank you. So you had 350 poems. How did you manage to narrow it down to <laughs> this collection? Well, you know how hard it is to submit work out when you are financially strapped. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and contest costs on average, and these are the cheap ones, $35 a pop. Um, I knew about this one that was opening submissions and it was free. And I had also heard that they open at midnight and that the submissions fill up really quickly. And I love this small press. So I was like, I have to, I have to do this. And so I just spent like a week and a half with poems all over my apartment trying to like figure it out and narrow it down so that I could submit my work to this small independent press for free. And I worked really hard to like find an order and and get it done. And um, I didn't have internet at my apartment. (laughs) So I knew where I could find it though, which was across the street. Mm. There's like some real estate office. And I was like, they had open access internet. So at midnight, I like took this complete manuscript Mm. and submitted it, sat on the sidewalk and like just press submit. And having that deadline forced me to get it together. That was the only place I submitted it to. Wow. That's great. I was so broke. (laughs) Yeah, the contests are ridiculous. But that deadline, that helped. Like, I just had to make it happen. Your process is you have all your poems printed out, right? Yes. And then selecting from there and kind of, did you lay them out all out on the ground and everywhere? Yeah, well, I took the big stack and I wrote like, yes, no, maybe on every single page. And then Mm -hmm. after that, I kept narrowing down and narrowing down. And by the time I had enough to like cover my walls with, I did that. Like I put them all up on the wall and I read the book from start to end to see if it would work. And it worked. um, (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, well, I, I had some help afterwards, like reordering the poems uh, with Deep Vellum, my publisher, who's amazing. Yeah. And I'm so glad that they took the book because mm-hmm. I really was not going to submit it out because I didn't have the funds to do it. And I was starting to feel very one rejection is all it takes for me to feel really sensitive. Well, and, and in this game, you're going to get a bunch, too. That's just how you're it gonna goes. You're going to get a bunch. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's how it happened. That's such a cool story. I love, yeah, putting them up on the walls and, and being able to reorder that way. The physical, the tactile nature of that is is really satisfying. We love ordering manuscripts as part of our job. We yes. just love do, doing that with poets. So it's cool to hear that you got you got some help with that, too, with Deep Vellum, because it's such an important part of a collection of poems. Yeah. Um, and God, I can't even imagine having started with that many poems, how to conceptualize an arc or, you know, some kind of progression through the book, having all of those other poems. That's quite the process. Well, I have one fun question for you. Okay. My fun question is when your book is out on June 1st and when all of our listeners buy it, (laughs) could you give us an idea of what would be the best way to read this book? Like, ideally, anywhere we could go, anywhere we could be, what circumstances should we read this book under? Oh, man, that's a great question. I mean, I think anywhere. My goal is just to be able to transport you. I mean, it'd be great to like. My mom said, "I'm at the park. I'm gonna read. <laughs> I'm gonna read your book at the park." And, mm-hmm. and all the flowers are out, and she said it was really fragrant. Um, but I'm hoping that it's just like whenever the impulse grabs you, mm. because there's no one right way to read a book of poems. So I just hope that. I hope that there there are a few that are soothing and have a medicinal healing mm. quality because that, that's why I wrote them. Yeah. Anar, do you have any fun questions for Julie? Oh my gosh. I forgot we do fun questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, what sounds were you listening to when oh. you were writing? That's a great question. Well, the herbarium is like library silence for the most part. Mm. Um, Sometimes I would hear people like talking about their work or one time I heard George on the phone and he was like, by the time we get that grant, the specimen will be extinct. (laughs) (laughs) And it was heartbreaking, but it's so true of the environment that he's working in. Um, So other than that, it was like very quiet, doors slamming occasionally. I didn't listen to music. Like, yeah. That's interesting to hear because at first familiarizing myself with this collection and hearing the word herbarium, at first I thought that maybe it was, um, I don't know if you've ever been to somewhere like Moody Gardens or a place that has a big botanical garden um moody gardens has an indoor botanical garden which is an extremely humid environment but it's very noisy with just the sounds of nature but then once i read your afterword which is incredible Mm -hmm. um and i'm super grateful for 
um, I realized that it was it was a library. Um, what a bold name, herbarium, for what is like a sterile environment. Um, and so I was just kind of curious, like the absence of sound, but still engaging with nature is a very fascinating atmosphere. I think it forced me to like listen to the story of the plants, you know, because it was so quiet and then think about where they came from and the music, you know, in those particular surroundings. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The grant shouting into the phone about the grant that is heartbreaking but it is the sound of a library sometimes <laughs> wow cool oh my gosh how are we an hour and a half in and i want to talk to you about so much uh -huh. um we've been reading your articles online mm -hmm. and are just so impressed and this is a very interesting time um and we're really lucky that you're putting work out online um mm -hmm. explores mental health um we've got a huge crisis here in austin um and really appreciated your evaluation of prop b yeah i'm really glad you brought those articles up and i think they tie in so nicely with what you said earlier julie about some of these poems you wrote with the idea of healing in mind, or maybe all of them on some level. And, and I was just curious if you wanted to close us out with one of those poems that you feel particularly at peace within. Oh, um, page 15, Rosa Rugosa. I remember being a small fruit my mother dressed me up like a sock and covered my head with a pointy hat. We went outside and I saw my first snow and my first green shiny leaf. I blinked at the sun and sneezed, my first allergy to light a big bright star on fire. The sensations of being alive so strange my neck was new, and I didn't know how to bend it. I looked up, and how heavy it was to work the heavy thing upright again. The first sound I want to believe was my mother. Through many years, the pitch of my voice has grown to meet hers, almost identical. I don't remember my first sense of dread but I think of it whenever I see a baby cry. Mm. It's weird that that's the comforting poem. <laughs> no, but it, to me, it's like all about comfort. It's about mother and child bond, you know. Mm -hmm. When you look at a rose before it's bloomed, it just looks like this tiny baby head with a cap on it. Mm -hmm. um, and I... I love I love any poem with my mom in it. Yeah. I'm a sucker for those too. Wow. I remember being a small fruit is the sweetest line of poetry. And and I think that the sense of dread that sneaks in at the end in association with a baby crying, it's like you automatically fill in that the baby is comforted. 
So I feel like comfort is implied even in the sense of dread. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Such a good request there, Claire. That's such a great poem to, to end on. The collection really lands us in a place of hope because you do explore trauma and illness and violence and we may not go super deep into any of those things but we are definitely in the presence of them and so I felt I felt like the manuscript did the reader a kindness with the last two poems um, especially the second to last one I felt that sense of hope revived in the regenerative nature of flowers they can be trampled to death and then regenerate the next year and I feel like yeah you you talk about it in the afterward and I definitely can't say it any better than you did but your idea of paying close attention to nature as a way to regulate the mind and the spirit that may have been deregulated <laughs> um disrupted by trauma um definitely rang true thank you Julie, this was so fun. <laughs> Julie, it is an honor to finally have you on our podcast. Um, we're so thrilled about Bright Specimen entering the world. Well, thank you so much, Anar and Claire. Yes, thank you so much for talking with us, Julie. I'm so happy to do it. Thank you. Thank you.